Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome back, folks. Skip Gallagher, Gallagher NOPD watchdog, joins us. He a series of public records requests into the city that went, for the most part, unanswered. And then just recently, there were answers that were being provided after he filed suit. Uh, He filed suit after waiting five months, and uh, what has been revealed thus far is kind of telling. And uh, he's here to tell us about it. Skip, welcome to the show. Good morning, Noel. Nice to talk to you. So, Skip, I know it was a very frustrating process, obviously not until litigation uh, was, uh, not until you filed suit did they finally begin to respond to some of your requests. That's correct. I had over 30 public records requests going back more than a year that I just could not get an answer to. And uh, once Tulane's First Amendment Law Clinic stepped up and filed suit on my behalf, then some results Came across, And one of them, which was just a little shy of six months, was the number of DNA samples that the city has uh, stored. And, uh, and I don't know if you remember, but uh, last year in May of 22, I found out that there were 73,000 unprocessed DNA samples. And to date, that now appears to be about 96,000 unprocessed DNA samples. Um, it's a little concerning that it's been a year and about a year and a half since that May 22. And of course, the situation is just as bad or worse than it was a year and a half ago. So I think the only way to get something done is that you have to reveal one, there's a problem, address that problem, and then take some corrective action to move forward. And I think there's some things that can be done, but I'm a little concerned the city is just not taking it very seriously. And to be fair to this administration, this is a problem that goes back many administrations, right? I mean, the the crime lab was down and out in the aftermath of Katrina, and it really never did fully establish itself, and and the DNA lab kind of was put to the uh, to the side. And, and just trying to get the basic crime lab back on up and running, and and it stayed in that in that position until what about 18 months ago they hired a new uh, cr- crime lab director and a DNA lab director to try and resolve it. Correct? That's absolutely correct. Right after Katrina, the crime lab was essentially destroyed. We still had the people that uh, could run the crime lab, but we did not at that point have any functional DNA analysis. We lost them, and we actually had this problem prior to Katrina where we would hire someone to test DNA. They would get trained to get the skills, and then they would quit, leaving for a better-paid job. That is still occurring. Um, The last DNA hire that we had 
who left um, was there one year. He was, he was in position one year and essentially left for a, a job that pays more money. It's a, it's a very difficult time right now for folks to keep their DNA analysis. The, um, there is a very competitive market for folks that are qualified in DNA analysis. And there is sort of poaching going on between the labs. What I'm concerned with is that New Orleans doesn't realize this and that you need to pay your people quite well to keep them so that they will be there year after year so that they will not be poached. And we don't end up in this cycle where we train someone and watch them leave uh, because that's the least productive time in, in their work life is that first year. The other is we can pay even more money and poach people from other uh, crime labs. And that's what many cities have actually done. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, having established and been in, in, in the, um, the beginning in, of, of a DNA lab in Jefferson Parish working with the, with the coroner at the time because we housed it there first and then we, we built a full-fledged DNA lab uh, at the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. It's very difficult. Uh, you got to stay in front of it, like you said. Uh, I was looking at the exit interview of this uh, DNA technician, and what struck me, a lot of unsatisfactory ratings, and, and you know, this is one person's perspective. But what, what was interesting was the following. Uh, he's working off-site, uh, obviously, at the state crime lab and doing work there. And the period of time that he worked there, he asked to have an NOPD email and was never given an NOPD email the entire time that he worked for the NOPD off-site. And to me, that's emblematic of you're not clicking on much of any cylinder here if you can't even get an email you know, issued to an individual who's actually working for your organization and doing some of the most critical work that there is in a crime lab. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you've summed it up wonderfully. It's, uh, it is amazingly disappointing that we had someone trained, and it was the last time, I think in 21, that was the last time we had two DNA analysis. We've since been functioning on one. We have had funding for four positions, and yet those positions have gone unfilled for the last years. But even when that person quit, he was one of two. We, sh we still should have had two other people at work. We should have long ago hired these people, sent them to the state crime lab to be trained, and then we should be able to process more DNA because that's really the yeah. bottleneck here. And, and you're completely familiar with this, but the big picture is you have to identify and collect the evidence, which is why we have tens of thousands of DNA samples out there, but then we have to process the evidence. You have to take fingerprints in, you have to take ballistics in, you have to take DNA in, put it in front of the expert to analyze and then prosecute. But we're stuck at this second step because we cannot analyze the best piece of forensic evidence that's out there. We instead have it warehoused. It should really be something that most people in the city should be indignant about. I think everyone has seen a CSI show and realizes the importance of a DNA sample. 
And where it really comes into play is how do you catch serial criminals? And I think you understand this better than most. People commit not one crime, but a series of crimes. And DNA can link them to those crimes. So a car burglar will leave DNA behind each and every time. And that DNA can link that to one person who's committed 30, 40, 50 car burglaries. How many serial criminals do we have in New Orleans that we were, that were unable to detect because we're not processing DNA? It really is a fundamental problem, and it is fixable. And um, I think it was Channel 8 that revealed that the city doesn't really expect to have a fully functional crime lab till late 27. That, that's not the right answer. That is just not the right answer. There are other short-term things that can be done as well as establishing a crime lab before that. Now, I'm, I'm very glad that we have a new uh, civilian head of the crime lab, Dr. Kelly. She seems very well qualified, but what she really needs is an assistant. Uh, the crime lab is not a one-person show. You need a head and you need a good assistant. And then you need to get those people hired and fast-track them as quickly as you can to qualification and get them working. You know, we have a building, so, but we don't have the DNA people in it. So let me put this in context for you. Uh, so I did a, I did some research, and um, I, I went to an organization that uh, collects data um, that's uh, I know that that deal with this issue as well. So one DNA technician analyst, um, if they're preparing that sample to run the D, to run the testing on the DNA sample for casework, the median number that they can do in one year is 490 samples. So let's just assume the 100,000 that we're talking about, I think it was 96,000, let's just round it off to 100. We know that there's more than one sample for each case. Um, that's a given for the most part. But let's just say that these are 100,000 cases, right? In order for one technician to clear that backlog, it would take 204 years for one MTE. Yeah. Right. Yes. So let's assume you had six. And if you had six, that would be a lot. At one time, the JPSO had six people doing this. Yeah. If you had six that were that were doing this at with that number, it would take 34 years to clear yeah. that backlog. Now, if you're entering these samples in CODIS, right? which is mm -hmm. what you're talking about where you run the samples to see if you got a hit against anybody else. The median throughput is about 24 to 2,900. So let's just take the high number, 2,900. Um, mm -hmm. You can prepare to put into to the CODA system, right? That would take 34 years to get for one FTE, DNA technician to get those samples into CODIS. So mm -hmm. that kind of puts this in into context. And, you know, whether we're working on the priority or highest probability of success uh, of, of getting a hit 
in the manner in which you collect it, the, uh, where you actually find it. There's a whole bunch of factors that, that can influence the success rate of DNA um, and that most people don't realize because they just watch TV and, you know, they think you can get DNA out of the air. And it's really uh, tainted juries because there's an expectation that DNA is going to appear everywhere, and it's not. But it is, a, as you point out, uh, a critical technology uh, for law enforcement. But this gives you an example, uh, uh, puts context to how human capital intensive this is. And you can try to overutilize it where it's not going to work at all. And, you know, so it, it, it's, it is a problem. It is a huge problem that you've uncovered here. And if we're another two years away from a lab uh, and we're, we're clipping 30-something thousand samples a year, I mean, we're never going to run all of these samples. So that's not going to happen. Yes, um, yes, you're and, absolutely right. The math is and, disturbing. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, when you put it in the context of, of the throughput, it's not happening. But there really needs to be an open and honest conversation about this. Right. And I think uh, and, and, and thankfully you have been pushing the buttons to bring it to that forefront because um, we're actually, um, you know, we're storing a lot of stuff. I mean, there, there are ways of getting it into CODIS where you can outsource some of this, but it, it's all a function of money and it's a function of priority. Uh, and yes. we keep hearing that, you know, what we need to remedy a lot of the issues with with the NOPD that have been and 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 this does not totally lie on Mayor Cantrell's back. She inherited this. This is one of those things that she said in her state of the city that I agree with. There were cans kicked down the road for a long time, uh, but we've been in mm-hmm. office six years, and I'm not so sure that we've set the priority as it relates to this DNA lab. Not to say that it would have cleaned up this mess, because it wouldn't have, but we should have been long down this road, long before now, quite frankly. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things Jefferson Parish, you mentioned, they have the ability to triage a sample, decide how important it is, and get it to the front of their line, because they have their own DNA lab. And this is something we have a very, very difficult time with, because we have a very limited number now, I do understand, although I do not have those numbers yet, I'm trying to get them, that New Orleans has sent several hundred more samples in to be processed through a private lab, but it's still, it's a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. And when you start to think of the victims that have seen a CSI show and think, oh, DNA has been collected, I'm sure that this will solve my case, and the problem is, these victims' DNA samples, they're not in the system. They're warehoused. They're, they're not even in the line to be processed by the state because even once they get in that line to be processed by the state, if they can, it's often more than one year before a sample is actually analyzed to be entered into CODIS. Mm-hmm. It is a, a well, when I process. when I give you these numbers, that puts in context the challenge, you know, that that everyone is 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 trying to draw upon a very limited asset. I don't know how many DNA technicians the state lab has today. I knew what it was at, at one time, 
but they're challenged as well. And that throughput number uh, doesn't really change much. And the technology is not advanced enough, even though they they have rapid DNA. It's not improved uh, exponentially uh, to the number of samples that are being collected on crime scenes, not only across Louisiana, but across the country. And there are very limited number of DNA labs out there because it is a very costly technology. Uh, it's very, uh, edu- it requires a lot of education for your technicians. It's not easy. Uh, they have to be degreed in the sciences and, and the like uh, in order to get the accreditation and to maintain the accreditation is not easy either. Um, so it, it's you really one of, one of the most difficult things to keep alive and well within a law enforcement agency is a DNA lab. And then second to that would be your crime lab. Uh, yes. You know, and, and, and but it, it's, all a, it's all a function of priority. But it does, as Skip, you pointed out, it plays a critical role. Uh, and the return on the investment can be huge as it relates it to time and, and, and being able to identify people with a a very uh, stable forensic tool. Yep. Serial criminals, this is how you identify them. And, but you're absolutely right. Other cities are facing a similar problem. I don't think it's as dire as New Orleans, but other labs have had, uh, I just read about a lab about a month ago who had every single one of their DNA analysis poached. They essentially were hired away at better salaries to go work somewhere else because they're already qualified. They can step into a lab and immediately begin working. So New Orleans has taken in the past a different approach. We've hired people who are brand new, need to be uh, certified, trained, qualified, and then we see them poached. And if we don't change the salary of what we are paying our DNA analysis we're not going to be able to keep them once we train them. And I I think what you mentioned earlier, a conversation needs to happen. And you can try to hide the data and wait for me to sue for it. And I don't think that's pretty help. That's very helpful. Um, Try to solve the problem and address the problem. It took us, what, 17 years to build a crime lab. And we forgot to put DNA in it. We don't have the people and we don't have the equipment. Um, we should have been prepared for that. So. No, no doubt. I mean, I, I did it. I know it's difficult, but it shouldn't take that long at all, yeah. for sure. Skip Gallagher, Gallagher thank you for joining us. Please keep up the great work. We really... Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink... What you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, folks, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute released a new study looking at competition from charter, private, and home schools in some of the nation's largest school districts. And here to join us to tell us about it is Mike Petrelli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be back. So, Mike, this is all of this this looming issue of school choice, which has been um, really uh, a, a lot of uh, friction politically about whether or not we should have it, not have it. Mm-hmm. The Fordham Institute, your y'all stance on this is that you think this is healthy, that competition is healthy, and that we should explore this in a much broader way, right? Yeah, that's right. And the good news is we now have solid evidence. Uh, you know, used to be a, just a theory, Milton Friedman, way back when, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist, used to make this argument forever that competition would bring positive benefits in education. Well, now we've tried it in lots of places. Certainly with the charter school system is one major way, and we see that especially in New Orleans, but uh, throughout the country. And and in many states, they've been passing a variety of programs to give private school scholarships or savings accounts to families. Uh, And what the studies are showing time and again is that when you do that, the number one beneficiary is actually the kids in traditional public schools because the competition is leading to positive results for those kids, even if they don't make the change to a private school or a charter school or a home school. And, and what's the connection? I mean, it, it's, the, it, it's the, the pressure because these public schools, they basically get so much money per student and they realize that they're not going to be able to continue to to feed this organization if if they don't keep their students where they are right yeah yeah no that's exactly right i mean just as it works in the private sector when you're a business and you got to worry about losing customers and that's going to help you up your game you know versus if you're the only player in town you've got a monopoly then uh, then you don't have that same kind of pressure same goes with our school system i'd I'd say the the big uh, big difference of course it's not a business of course it's not the private sector but there's also politics right and so Throughout mm-hmm. the country, you know, the number one factor in so many school systems are the teachers' unions, which have enormous power, even in places where they're not officially a union. They're just an association. Like in much of the South, they still have a lot of power about who gets on the school board and what contracts the school boards sign and, and uh, you know, how things work in a given place. And when you suddenly have to compete and parents have options and some of the money is going to flow in different directions, that can also change the politics. It can actually mean that parents, in some cases for the first time, have some real political power. You know, the system starts to pay attention to them some more and not just to the people who are employed by the system. That, that's a real game changer. 
You know, it was interesting in the aftermath of Katrina, we had a lot of students that were displaced from both our public, private, parochial schools here in the city of New Orleans. They went out to mm-hmm. other areas, Texas, uh, northern Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. They came back with a different experience set and, it, and in many ways a much more positive experience. And I sat on the board of a number of schools but seen what they're doing in in other more competitive school districts, even in the private sector, you know, private uh, schools and, and parochial schools, and they quickly realized we're we're not staying abreast of the latest and greatest. We need to up up the game, and they did, and everybody and, benefited from it. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, you know, before Katrina, look, I think many of us thought New Orleans had one of the worst school systems in the country. Uh, not only low performing, but a ton of corruption also. Didn't the FBI actually have an office within the school system uh, to try to stop people from stealing money? I mean, it was a mess. And uh, as terrible as that that storm and that tragedy was, uh, the schools in New Orleans are dramatically better. And now people look and think that New Orleans is, is one of the leading lights in terms of what can happen when you free up education, uh, bring in, uh, in this case, charter schools that have strong oversight, you know, they have to get results or else they can close. And they do close there in New Orleans if they don't get results, but that give parents real options and real, real power. And it's exciting to see what has happened. Uh, and now I think, look, if, if, if New Orleans kids had to evacuate for a while to a Houston or to an Atlanta, I, I think they would find that they were actually ahead of the kids. Uh, in those places because the schools in New Orleans are arguably better now than in some of those other places. Mike, and what's interesting is that it really didn't take a whole lot of market share, so to speak, for lack of a better term, because you mm-hmm. point out, and uh, uh, you guys point out, that just 7% of all public school students attend a public charter school. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a statistically significant number, but it's really started to really up the game of others. That's right. And, and now you've got to keep in mind that charter schools especially are very much concentrated in our big cities. And so there are a number of cities that have, say, 50 percent of kids in charter schools or at least 30 percent or 20 percent. Uh, and those are big numbers, you know, and that does seem to be enough to get the attention of the school system, of the school boards, of, of the unions, of uh, the power centers, and they change their behavior. You know, and, and in those places where they're losing kids to charter schools, uh, there is finally conversations about, hey, why, why are these parents unhappy with what we're providing? Why are they going elsewhere? And maybe can we compete? You know, if they're going to these schools that are providing, say, a Montessori education or back to basics or classical education. Well, maybe we should offer some some schools within our own district. And that's what you see in a lot of places. Uh, and, and again, that's that's what you want. You know, in in a lot of the country, there's just very little reason for school systems to pay attention to what the parents are asking for. Uh, and you can feel like it's, you know, you're like you're going to the DMV and, you know, you're going to take a ticket, sit, wait in line and, and you're going to get terrible service and there's not much you can do about it. Uh, but in places that now have some more competition, at least there's one reason for those school systems to try to get their act together. Mike, there's always a concern being raised by some that this will have a disproportionate impact on lower socioeconomic groups or even by race. Mm-hmm. What are we seeing? What is the trend? 
Yeah, look, it's having the most positive effect, exactly, on the kids that traditionally are left behind. You know, when, when you look at the charter school studies, especially, you say who's benefiting from attending charter schools? It's mostly black and Hispanic students who are making particularly strong student achievement gains, also low-income students. And same thing, when you see in our cities that you give black families, you give Hispanic families, you give low-income families a choice, uh, that that seems to have the biggest impact. Look, in a lot of places, the affluent kids and white kids have for a long time had choices because if you've got money, you can go to a fancy private school. you know, And that's what you see. And, and there's still plenty of school districts where that's all the school choice there is. You know, 10 or 20 percent of the white kids, the wealthy kids are, are you know, not going to the public schools. They're going to private school. Uh, and, and so the school systems have always had to worry about some of those kids leaving and taking their money with them and, and what can they do to keep them in. Uh, but, you know, if you're poor and you just had to go to the school down the street, uh, then you didn't have that same kind of clout. So that's what's really changed. And, and it's a big change, an important change. Yeah, and, and and obviously, so that really defeats what a lot of the detractors who still are, are singing that hymn, right, mm-hmm. uh, today, and the data is showing otherwise. No, no, that's right. And, and look, if, if you poll people and you ask them, hey, what do you think about giving parents a choice in education? That's overwhelmingly popular, especially, by the way, among black and Hispanic voters who are still disproportionately Democrats. Uh, it's a real split in the Democratic Party with the, the teachers who tend to be, you know, uh, very powerful within the Democratic Party being against this, but black and Hispanic parents being very much for it. Uh, but if you make the argument, well, you know, school choice hurts public schools, then you start to lose support because, as we know, most people have their kids in public schools. I have my own kids in public schools, right? And, and of course, we want those schools to be good, too. And so for a long time, the, the opponents of school choice have used exactly that argument. They've tried to sow those seeds of fear. You know, if we give kids a choice, uh, they're going to leave our schools. They're going to take all this money with them. We're not going to have you – know, we're going to have to raise class sizes. We're going to have to fire teachers. You know, we're not going to be able to have nicer buildings, all of this fear. And the opposite happens, you know, that if you look at, at places that have been subject to competition, actually the kids do better. And, and even on the money front, you know, it's not that all of the money leaves the school. It's basically the state's share of the money. Right. Uh, all that local money that's coming from local taxes, usually property taxes, that still stays in the school district to serve fewer kids. So they actually have more money per child uh, than they did before. And so, look, it, it's one of these cases, and, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that most policy, you know, it's, uh, it's all about trade-offs. Uh, this is one, though, where it really does feel like a win-win. You know, the, the kids who want a choice get to have a choice and, and often better schools. The kids who are happy to stay in the traditional public schools, those schools tend to get better also. How, um, I mean, there's been a lot of friction on this issue politically. Do we see that it's getting any better? You know, I would say that what what we certainly see is a lot of progress in red states with Republican politicians embracing school choice, including private school choice. You know, this was a huge year for education savings accounts, which is a a popular form of this, uh, passing in lots of places around the country, notably not Texas, uh, but uh, but in Iowa and uh, in Ohio, an expansion of a voucher program, uh, you know, all all over 
the South and the Midwest, uh, you see places that are embracing this. Uh, but Democrats, you know, again, given the power of the unions within the, the Democratic Party, uh, have generally stayed opposed. There, there are some exceptions, and especially on the charter school issue, you can see some more moderate Democrats getting behind it, and frankly, more black and Hispanic Democrats because their constituents, they're sending their kids to these charter schools, and they're happy with them, and so they start to respond uh, you know, accordingly. Uh, but look, we need to continue to make this case and help people understand that this is not about school choice versus public schools. It's about, hey, this is another great tool for helping public schools get better. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this is not an either or. This is a both and. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for the incredible work that y'all do. We really appreciate your time and, and your insight. And uh, we'll continue to talk about this topic as uh more and more studies uh, reveal uh, the benefits of this to so many school systems across the country. And, and by the way, have a great holiday season as well. Hey, great. Thank you. You too. Appreciate you having me on. All righty, folks. That's Mike Petrelli, president of the Thomas Fordham Institute and visiting fellow of the Hoover Institution. We will be right back after the break. 504-260-1870 on the Oakwood Heart Jewelers talk and text line. It's No Filter Friday. We'll go to the talk lines. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. So the Border Patrol warns agents to be on the alert because they found 10 IEDs at the border. We continue to believe and uh, close our eyes as to the threat that's presented at the southern border. I mean, the evidence continues to mount. The numbers are staggering. 55,000 encounters uh, with illegal immigrants in the month of October at the Tucson border sector. I mean, you, you just can't make this up. I mean, I folks ask me all the time, why do you talk about this all the time? I said, because it's getting worse. It's not getting any better. We cannot stare the obvious in the face and continue to walk around it. And all we have going on in D.C. is finger pointing. This is not a D or an R uh, 
blame session. It, it, there's blame to go around. Everybody that's been in control of the House, the Senate, the Executive Department, and the presidency, they should, this issue needs, needs to get resolved. I mean, at, or, or at least enforce the laws that are on the books today. Why do we have such a reluctance to do so? I keep going back to the manner in which we address poverty in this country at the present time. We have over 40 million people that live below the poverty level. We have somewhere just south of 60 60 million people on Medicaid in this country. Those numbers are staggering. And when we have folks coming across the border that have no job, no connection, no family, no anything, where do we think that they are going to end up? Whether it's short-term, mid-term, or in the long term, it doesn't really matter. It has a huge economic impact. That's not to say that we eliminate immigration altogether, no, but it's got to be in an ordered and structured way. It fundamentally makes sense to do it that way, to know who is here and who's coming in the country, right? So it's going to be interesting to see... (laughs) There's a lot of pressure on this issue in in D.C. right now because the polling on it is not boding well for President Biden. So people are beginning to wake up. They're beginning to change their tune, so much so that Hispanics now are saying that there will be political payback if Joe Biden strikes a border deal. So the activist groups now are abandoning the Biden administration and saying if these reports are true, this is a flat-out dumb path for the White House and Democratic leaders to travel, and they should immediately abandon this. Now, remember, everyone is saying that they, we should be able to reach compromise on this issue. That's not what they're looking for. They don't want compromise. They want amnesty for everybody. And as the numbers keep increasing, they're going to want amnesty up to the bitter end, and that's what they're looking for, and that's what the issue's all about. We'll be right back. Folks, when we come back after the top of the news break, we'll visit with Jessica Brandt from the Ray and Jessica Brandt Foundation, as well as Lou Fragoso, President and CEO of Children's Hospital. We will announce the dollars that we collected in the Radiothon effort. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.